what we're going to do today is going to be a bit of an overview. I always like as we start a new book of the Bible, I like to do an overview. Get that big picture. It's kind of like if you're on Google Maps or something and you're zoomed in to where you're at on the map and you want to have a better idea with what's around you, you kind of zoom out so you can get a big perspective. And then when you zoom back in, that smaller perspective makes more sense because you know where you are in the bigger scheme of things. Well, that's what we want to do this morning is we're going to take the book of Exodus and we're going to get that big, the big picture of it. And so then as we start going through the little parts, road by road, or verse by verse, well then we'll have a better understanding of where we fit. So, you know, most of the errors that people come up with in their understanding of the Word of God it has to do with context. Verses, sentences, passages get taken out of the context that they were written in. And so we want to be making sure that we're understanding them within that, within that context. So in Exodus chapter 34, we're going to be reading a few verses, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." You know, well, we're kind of just entered into the playoff time in the professional football season. And now the big deal starts because hey, everybody who loses goes home. But, you know, I was thinking about that a little bit and thinking about why these guys uh, play. And, of course, there's lots of reasons for them to play. In fact, some of them, there's millions of reasons for them to play. But, you know, when it gets to the playoffs, even though playoffs mean more money and those kinds of things, too, I, th- I think it means something even more. Why do they want to be in that championship game, in that Super Bowl? It's because it's, it's about being a champion. It's about glory is really what they're in the pursuit of. I don't think it's all in the pursuit of money, though that's part of it. But it's about that glory of being a champion, of being the, the best at something, or part of the best at something. And, you know, I don't think it's limited to professional athletes. I think we see it in all walks of life. Some people pride themselves in athletics. Some people pride themselves in knowledge or wisdom. Some people pride themselves in maybe musical abilities and or acting abilities. And but you know, even if you get away from the fame, which of us don't want to be the best or at least really good at the things that we do? And the the difference I think for a believer in Christ is that we recognize that our glory is best found within the glory of the God who created us. That really is freeing because it gives us the ability to set aside the pursuit of our own glory. And in pursuing the God of glory, in pursuing His glory, we find find that we get to experience uh, that glory as well. That's what I want to consider this morning is the glory of God. And that's because that's really the main theme of the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, it says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Remember when we finished the book of Genesis, God had told Israel His descendants were going to be in Egypt for the next 400 years. 
And they would be brought into slavery and they would be mistreated by the Egyptians. And then God says, your people are going to cry out to me and I'm going to hear them and I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them to the land that he had promised to Abraham. And that's what happens. God in the book of Exodus comes to visit his people. He hears the cry of the Hebrews and he comes down and he takes Moses and he sends Moses to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he's going to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt and bring them to the land of promise. But they're not going to get all the way to the land of promise in the book of Exodus. By the time you get through all of Moses' books, they're going to get there. But not by the end of Exodus. So the first 18 chapters are about God bringing Israel out into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai where he's going to give them the law. Following that, God's going to make a new covenant with Israel. They're going to break it. God's going to decide what he's going to do about that. And then things are going to be looking up by the time we get to the end of the book of Exodus, but with a question mark over it. And you'll you'll understand that better by the time we get to the end of our thing today. When Moses goes to Pharaoh... He tells Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And you know what Pharaoh's response is? Who is God that I should obey him? You see, in Egypt, Pharaoh was considered a God. And so Pharaoh says, who is this God that I should obey him? You know, the the next several chapters, which are going to include ten plagues upon Egypt and the gods of Egypt, are going to be answering for Pharaoh that exact question. Pharaoh says, who is God? God says, let me show you. And he begins to take down Egypt's gods with each plague. And he begins to plague the Egyptians and Pharaoh. God is showing him. And that's what it says in this verse. Who among the gods, because Egypt was full of gods, who among the gods is like you? God had just showed that they were nothing compared to him. They were fake. Whereas he is real. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glory. Working wonders. And so we get to see the glory of God through the book of Exodus. Now as we do that, we're going to kind of scan the book uh, rather quickly and kind of show where God's glory appears as we go through the book of Exodus. The glory of God is revealed, first of all, over Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh said, who is God? And God says, let me show you. And God even says in, in His Word that He raised up Pharaoh for this purpose so that God could plague the Egyptians and show his power to the Israelites and demonstrate his glory before Egypt. In chapter 14, as we read in verse 4, it says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so God shows his glory by defeating the Egyptians. The people of God need to get a grip on that. (laughs) As God's chosen people, the Israelites, they go out into the wilderness and eventually God leads them up to the promised land. And when they get up to the promised land, the people on the other side of the river are shaking in their shoes because they remember what God has done to Egypt. The Israelites aren't that confident. Well, not only is it seen over Pharaoh, it's also seen in providing manna and quail. God gets him out into the wilderness. And remember, by this time, it's probably a couple million people. And so he gets them out into the wilderness and they start to get hungry and they start to get thirsty and they begin to complain. What are we going to eat? 
And it's amazing at how quickly their memories fade. Because rather than remembering how hard they had it in Egypt when they were in bondage and slavery and treated by the evil taskmasters, they say, you know what, we were better off in Egypt. Maybe we should have just go back. We should just go back. Well, God, even though they doubt Him, He provides for them. He provides them in a couple amazing ways. One was quail. He has a bunch of quail that he blows in and feeds them with these quail. Another one was manna. We don't even know what it was. We know it was some kind of a bread-like substance is about all we know about it. In fact, the word manna in the Hebrew language means what is it? And so God was... I'm serious. God God was going to feed them and, and, uh, with this heavenly bread. That's how God provided for them in the wilderness with a day after day manna. In fact, He told them. He made, tested them again. He said, every day... There's going to be that on the ground for you to eat. So don't, don't pick up enough for tomorrow. Only pick up what you need today. Trust me to have it there again tomorrow. And you know what? Some of the people didn't trust him and they kept it till the next day and what they kept rotted. But the next day there was food there. On every day but the Sabbath. He said the day before the Sabbath, collect enough for two days. Well, amazingly, when you collect enough for two days the day before the Sabbath, it lasts right on through the Sabbath and you're just fine. But if you didn't collect enough for the Sabbath, thought you were going to go out and collect it on the Sabbath, you were out of luck because it didn't land, it wasn't on the ground on the Sabbath. But God miraculously provided for them this bread from heaven uh, while they were in this wilderness experience. As they're waiting for it to happen, God tells them, wait, you're going to see the glory of God. God is glorious as He provides for His people. God is glorious as He defeats the Egyptians to deliver His people out from under their bondage. He's glorious as they were receiving the law. When they get out of Egypt and they travel to Mount Sinai, God's going to give them the law. And this is the new covenant that He's going to make with them. He's going to bring Moses up on top of the mountain and He's going to give him to start with the Ten Commandments and many more commandments that are contained within the book as well. When He gives them the law, the glory of God is seen in this cloud and thunderings and lightnings and and God is demonstrating His glory in that way. And He tells Moses, He said, don't let anybody else come up. He says, anybody else comes up, they'll die. Under this amazing demonstration of the glory of God, Moses is given this new covenant by God, this new law of God. But then also, in the tent of meeting, the people would have struggles and uh, questions that they needed answered and disputes among themselves. And they would bring those to Moses. Well, Moses had a tent that he would set up and God's glory would come and rest at the front door of the tent and Moses would go into the tent and bring the complaints of the people or the problems of the people to God and God would give Moses the answers and Moses would solve the people's problems for him or give them the answers that they needed. But Moses had this tent of meeting where he could go into regularly with God and the glory of God was shining on this tent as Moses would go and visit with God. From there... Moses asked for God's glory to be revealed to him. At one time, now Moses enjoyed the glory of God in the tent of meeting. He had experienced the glory of God up on the mountain. But uh, there came a time where Israel violated the covenant. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Now remember what a covenant is. And in our society, the easiest covenant to see is that marriage relationship. When we get married, we enter into a covenant relationship with that other person that we're going to be faithful to them for the rest of our lives. That's what a covenant is, and that's what God does with the children of Israel. Remember, He'd already done that with Abraham. 
He told them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to build your family up till it becomes a nation. And through them, I'm going to reach out to the world. But now he's going to make another covenant with Abraham's family. This covenant of the law that he's going to bring through Moses. And he says, you follow these laws and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. As they followed these laws, they would be a model for the rest of the world. Well, while Moses is getting the covenant and bringing it down to the Israelites, the Israelites tell Aaron, you know what, Moses has been on the mountain for quite a while. We don't even know what happened to him. Make us a god. And so Aaron makes golden calves and they worship this golden calf. And they say to the golden calf, you're who brought us up out of Egypt. And what are the first two of the Ten Commandments? You'll have no other gods before me. You'll make no graven images. They've already broken the Ten Commandments before he's even got down off the mountain with them. They've violated the covenant. And so God says to Moses, before Moses even heads down the mountain, he says, this is what's happening down there. Now get out of my way. I'm going to go destroy those people. I'll start over with you. And Moses says, don't do it, God. Remember your promise to Abraham going to make this people great. And then also think of all the other nations that have just watched you deliver them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. Are they going to end up being thinking that you brought them out of Egypt, out into the desert just to destroy them? And so God says that He would let them go. But He says, here's the deal. I'm going to send you to the land that I promised to your forefathers. I'm going to send an angel with you to help you, but I'm not going. You people have violated the covenant with me. I'm not going. And Moses says before God, why go at all if you're not going with us? Isn't it the fact that you are going to dwell with us that is going to make us different from the other peoples of the world? How else are we different than the fact that you live with us? And Moses says, if, if, if you're not going with us, then don't send me. I don't want to go. And so God listens to Moses again. And he, Moses already tells the people, God's not going to go with you. You're going to go. And they're like, oh, we don't want to go without God. And they become sorrowful. And so God listens and He decides, okay, okay, I'm going to go. I'll go with you. And then that's when Moses asks Him. He says, Lord, show me Your glory. And God says, well, you can't see me face to face. You'll die. But I'll put you in this cleft of the rock. I'm going to tuck you in this cave here a little bit. And I'm going to let you know when I'm passing by and you can see me as I go by. And He shows Moses His glory. Not only that, but it is reflected by Moses, that glory. Because Moses was up on the hill with God, and then when he'd come down off the hill with God to talk to the Israelites, it says that Moses, his face actually radiated the glory of God. It's kind of like when we spend too much time in the sun. You know what? Our faces all turn red. We radiate, right? Because uh, the impact of being in front of the sun. Well, it was the same with Moses in front of the glory of God. The glory of God penetrated Moses so much that when Moses came down off the mountain, that the glory of God radiated back off of Moses' face. So much so that the Israelites were kind of creeped out by it. They said, look, cover that up. You're scaring us. And so when Moses would go up before God on the mountain, he would take the veil off. When he'd come back down off the mountain for a while, he'd wear the veil so that the glory of God wouldn't freak out the Israelites. And so he would cover it up until it faded. And so Moses, we see him radiating the glory of God. And so we see that emphasized as well. And then also the tabernacle. The tabernacle. The word tabernacle just means tent. And when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, that's what they lived in. They, they made tents and they lived in tents as they traveled around the wilderness. 
God tells him in the book of Exodus, he says, look, I want you to make me a tent. I want you to make me a tabernacle. It's going to be a rather large tent. It's going to have kind of a a wall around it, a tented wall that would be around the thing. And then inside that, there would be a building, another tent. And then inside that building, there would be two sections with the, the most recessed section being the holy place or the most holy place. And that was seen as the dwelling place of God. And God would have his glory like in a cloud uh, over the top of that. And, and a, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day would rest on that. And so they would see a visible representation of the glory of God over the tabernacle. And that's kind of where the book of Exodus ends. Is with finally the, the God's going to go with them into the promised land. They've got the tabernacle for God that's built. And God's glory is resting on the tabernacle. And so God's presence is with them. But they're not in the promised land yet. And so we see that all through the book of Exodus, we see that God starts out by getting glory over Pharaoh through the destruction of Pharaoh's army and through the, the gods of Egypt. And as God shows Pharaoh exactly who he is. We see God's glory emphasized as he provides for the children of Israel in the wilderness, as he gives them the law, as he gives them the manna and the quail, as he gives them at the rock. He gives them water. They drank water from the rock when Moses hit the rock with his staff and it produced water. And so all the ways that God provided for Israel were examples of God's glory in their existence and in their lives. Well, as we look at this, book then and see the glory of God radiating through this book, what, what does that mean to us? How does it impact our lives? Well, I'd say the first thing that we need to do our, of our responsibility is that we need to recognize the glory of God. You see, God is glorious, whether we recognize it or not. And that's kind of the point here, isn't it? When God sent Moses to Pharaoh and Moses told Pharaoh, let, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, who is God? Why, why should I obey him? Why should I listen to him? And for the next while, God is going to show him exactly who he is. Pharaoh did not recognize the glory of God, and it led to his peril. What about the children of Israel? The children of Israel kind of hit and miss. I'd say more miss. They didn't really recognize the glory of God too well either. God establishes a covenant with them, and before the covenant, the terms of the covenant are even done being ratified, they break that covenant. They violate that covenant. They're willing to take the gold and silver that they just brought up out of Egypt, the gold, and melt it down and make a, a calf out of it, an image of a beast's burden, if you think of it that way, and bow down and worship before that calf, saying, you, this thing that we just fashioned with our own hands, brought us up out of Egypt. They're willing to do that. They are missing the boat on the glory of God. And even when Moses comes down off that mountain, radiating the glory of God, they want him to cover it up. We need to be like Moses. Moses, who had been in the tent of meeting experiencing the glory of God, who had been on the mountaintop experiencing the glory of God, who had been at that burning bush experiencing the glory of God, couldn't get enough of it. So when God finally says, okay, I'll go with you guys, Moses says, show me your glory again. <laughs> let, let, me, let me see it. That is glorious. And you know what? We get to see the glory of God in the book of Exodus even more than they understood it to be back then. Now, they got to see it physically. They got to see it with their eyes, and that's amazing. That would be quite the experience. But we get to see the fulfillment of a lot of it. 
Because you see, a lot of the things that God did with Israel were little pictures of what he was going to do one day in Jesus Christ. I think of the Passover. God gives them the Passover feast where they take the blood of the lamb and they smear it on their doorposts. And we'll talk more about that later when we get to it in detail. But they have this Passover feast where they celebrate how they were passed over in judgment. They, their firstborn were protected. They're alive because of this Passover. And in the New Testament, Jesus sits down with his disciples celebrating that Passover meal. And Jesus takes the element of the table and breaks the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And Jesus makes a connection between himself and that Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see that sacrifice of that lamb so that they would be spared the judgment of God when he came was a picture of Christ and what he did for us. By going to that cross, He died as our sacrifice so that we don't sit under the judgment of God. And then, not only that, but also the manna in the wilderness. God miraculously provided food for them. Jesus would talk about that. You see, the religious leaders would come to Jesus and they'd say, what sign do you give us? You're saying you're the Messiah. How do we know you're the Messiah? When Moses came, there was signs. There was bread that was provided for them in the wilderness when Moses came. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, they're saying, look at the sign. We knew that God talked to Moses because God sent bread from heaven. Jesus said, you're you're missing the point. What happened there? Bread came down from heaven that provided life. He says, I'm that one. I'm the one that came down from heaven to provide you life. I am that bread of heaven. Not only that, but while they're in the wilderness, they also got thirsty. And at one time, God tells Moses, go up and take your staff and hit the rock. And out of this rock is going to gush all this water and they'll be able to drink. And Moses does it and they drink. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him and the rock was Christ. Just as God provided them life in the wilderness through the manna, and He provided them life in the wilderness through the rock, Jesus is the manna. He is the bread from heaven. He is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. So He's beginning to give them a picture on how He would provide for them in more ways than just their physical health in the wilderness. And then also we think of the tabernacle. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. The Word became flesh, talking about Christ. He's the Word. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. And that's the whole point of of the tabernacle is that God comes and dwells with the Israelites. Most commentators connect it to Eden. 
When God first created the world, what did he do? He created the world and he created this special garden. And within the garden, he puts man and God and man dwell together in the garden because God walks with them daily in the garden. And then they sin and they ruin it and they're kicked out of the garden. Well, what is God doing is he's putting together his chosen people. He's kind of making a new Eden. God is taking and he's gathering his people together and he wants his tent and he's going to dwell in the midst of his people, live right there in town square and dwell in the midst of his people and live amongst them. And what does it say about Jesus that he took on flesh and he made his dwelling among us? And so we see that pointed to Christ as well. So our first thing that we need to do is recognize the glory of God and what he's doing in our world, in our life through his son, Jesus Christ. But secondly, we need to radiate the glory of God. You know, when Moses went up on top of that mountain and he was experienced the glory of God and the glory of God sank into him so that when he came down off that mountain, he radiated that back to the people. You know, the New Testament tells us that that's exactly what our lives should be like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, it says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So he's talking about the, the, the children of Israel. Many of them trusted Christ as their Savior, but by far not all of them. And so he's saying, look, today, while they're still reading the Old Testament that points forward to Christ, they miss it. Why? He says, because that veil, just like when they asked Moses to put a veil on, he said that veil is still over their hearts. He said, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see what that's saying? It's saying, look, Moses came down, the children of Israel asked him to put the veil on. They wanted a veil between them and God's glory. And he said that veil is still there. But when you put your faith in Christ, the veil's removed. All of a sudden you can see the glory of God. He says, we all with unveiled faces, because we've trusted in Christ, we behold the glory of God. What is he talking about? He's talking about as we dig into this word and we read it and we learn from it and we see God's glorious way of dealing on the earth and we see him predicting the coming of his son and then fulfilling that prediction in Jesus Christ. And we see God's working out his glory in this world. He says, as we continue to behold it, just like Moses, what do you have to do to radiate the glory of God? He had to be in God's presence, beholding the glory of God. And then when he came down off of that, he was changed. He says the same thing should be happening in our life. As we behold the glory of God, we're changed, transformed. He says we are changed more into the image of God, more into his glory. It happens gradually. He says from one degree of glory to another. So it happens gradually in our life. But as we spend time together in his word here, and as you spend time alone in God's word and beholding the glory of God, we're changed. Because haven't you seen change in your life from the time that you first trusted in Christ? And as you've grown over the years, as you've spent time beholding the glory of God, haven't you been changed from the inside out, transformed to become more and more like Christ? Aren't you much more like Christ than you were when you first came to Him in faith? But it didn't happen overnight. It happened a little bit at a time. It's a growth process. The New Testament looks back at this time in the Old Testament and says that's what we experience. As we come together here, often my prayer is, Lord, let me leave there different than when I came in. Let me reflect your glory a little bit more when I go out the door than I was when I was coming in the door. 
And so that's what an Exodus. Now that's a that's a big picture, and I hope it wasn't too much information in a small chunk of time. But that's in a nutshell. Exodus is about the glory of God. God's revealing His glory in different ways all through the book, and it comes down to those two things: Do we recognize the glory of God? Do we see what He's doing? Because if we do, then we're going to radiate that glory in the end. Now the book of Exodus comes to an end with a question mark. Remember, I mentioned that at the beginning. Because of the book of Exodus, God has finally said, okay, I'll go with you. They build the tabernacle. And the glory of God comes and rests on the tabernacle. And in chapter 40, which is the last chapter of of Exodus, it says, but Moses couldn't go in. And then when you get to the first verse of Leviticus, we find that Moses still isn't allowed to go in. It says that God speaks to Moses from the tent. But when you get to the first verse of Numbers, the next book after Leviticus, then all of a sudden Moses is speaking to God inside the tent. God has established His covenant with Israel. Israel violated it. And then God decides, okay, I will go with you into the promised land, but there's this question. How does a sinful people get to relate to a holy God? And Moses is left outside the tent. Leviticus will fix that problem. And Moses will be inside the tent at the end of Leviticus once that's done. So that's what that book's about. But this book... This book is about God delivering His people for His own glory, bringing them out and dwelling among them. We experience that same glory as we recognize the glory of God and radiate it from our being.